Open your Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. Today, we're looking again into one of the most easily recognizable portions of Scripture that we have in the Bible. Uh, this is commonly called the Lord's Prayer, or as I have uh, repeated already throughout th- this uh, study, that it could better be called the Disciples' Prayer, or perhaps the Model Prayer. Uh, we, re- we recognize this because we've grown up with this. Uh, if you grew up in a Christian family, then you've heard all about this. You've heard it your entire life. In fact, uh, you probably would have had to lived under a rock your entire life not to have heard about uh, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we recognize this, if not for the fact that we are Christian. Uh, some people hear it and they automatically think, well, what a great literary accomplishment. And not to have heard about it, as I said, would have been akin to never maybe living under a rock or never hearing about one of Shakespeare's plays or not hearing about, as an American, the Gettysburg Address or the preamble to the con- uh, Constitution. And don't go away today saying, well, Pastor Smith has put the Lord's Prayer on the level of the preamble or, or uh, the Gettysburg Address. But what I simply mean is it's a very recognizable portion of Scripture. In most Christian denominations, it's spoken. It's been made into a song uh, by some popular entertainers. Uh, It's a fallback prayer that many people go to when they don't know what to say and they can't think of anything else. And yet, as important as the Lord's Prayer is, most people don't know any more about it than just to recite the words by rote. And it's as significant to them as it would be reciting the preamble to the Constitution. But the Lord's Prayer is one of the most masterful statements that was ever made in Scripture. Scripture is inspired by God, and if we were... To put this on, in human terms, we would say that God was at his very best when Jesus spoke these words, uh, inspired scripture. So the Lord's Prayer is very important to us. It's been studied by, uh, from every angle. Uh, the 66 words are a model for every single prayer that's been prayed correctly. And can you imagine that? Christianity is now 2,000 years old, and the prayers of billions of people over all of these centuries from every continent on the globe... The prayers that God honors are always built upon these 66 words that we find in Matthew chapter 6 that we call the Lord's Prayer. Now, I want to talk about the prayer today, and we will be discussing this for uh, the next several weeks. Uh, If you want to know about prayer, if you want to know what to pray for, how to be effective in prayer, how to be God-honoring in your prayers, this is where you go in Scripture to find out. And this is what Jesus was doing. He was instructing the people about prayer. Uh, They were very wrong in the way that they worshiped God, and especially they were wrong about prayer. And then another thing that we've noticed as we've looked into this so far, um, that prayer stands out as one of the most important forms that we have of worship. In this section of Matthew, these first 18 verses of chapter 6, Jesus is speaking about worship in particular. And he's talked about giving, and he's spoken about acts of devotion. And he doesn't give a whole lot of time to either of those two subjects. Now, giving is, is developed more as we go into the New Testament. Uh, fasting, which represents one of the personal acts of devotion, is hardly even talked about at all in the New Testament. But this thing about prayer, it is so important that Jesus stops here, and he considers, and he just gives the people uh, just words of instructions about how to glorify God through prayer. And so the New Testament, as you go through it, develops prayer more than it does any other type of worship. Now, why would you think that that would be so? 
Well, it's really because prayer is just a way that God can most give a marvelous display of his glory. If you ask just about any Christian, how do you know that God is real? I mean, how do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know that you're saved? How do you know that God exists? And many times Christians will say, well, I know that he does because I've spoken to God. I've gone to him in prayer and I've, I've had him answer my prayers. Now, if you think about it, how would you know that God is real? How would you have, know that you even have a personal relationship with him unless you could go to God and you can communicate with him? Now, if you look at all the other religions of the world, their reactions to their God, their prayers to their God are really just knee-jerk reactions. And they don't have a God who's personal like we do. Christianity is the only religion where we have God manifested in the Holy Spirit, where he comes inside of us to dwell in us. So we have Jesus Christ as our Savior who gave his life for us. Then the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. And the Bible also teaches that we have a Father in heaven who cares for us and listens to us and desires that we should come to him in prayer. This is just a marvelous way that we worship God. And so here in this portion of Scripture, Jesus tells us how you speak with God. And there's a way that you come to him. There's a particular way, a a way that God expects you to come to him. And so these 66 words that we have in the Lord's Prayer are a framework. They're what we could call a skeleton that you build upon. And you take this and you build upon these different elements that Jesus gave in the prayer. And then you make the prayer your own by adding the other parts, uh, your desires and so forth that you need with it. But you have to have all these essential elements. Now today we're going to read the entire prayer once again. And then we're going to come back and we're going to discuss the particular portion of this prayer that we want to talk about today. So if you'd stand with me, please, and look at Matthew chapter 6. And uh, the Lord's Prayer begins with verse number 9. Matthew 6, verse number 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, we we are so thankful that we have the privilege of coming to you in prayer, that we can honor your name as we speak to you, and we want to worship you as we do pray. So, Lord, I pray that you would open up the text to us today. Help us to understand the particular portion especially that we want to talk about this morning. Bless your people through this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our subject this morning is the last part of verse number 9. Hallowed be thy name. Last week we looked into the beginning, our Father which is in heaven. And that is the address of this prayer. And so in the opening words of uh, the Lord's Prayer, we see that a relationship must exist between the one who, who prays, the one who asks God, and God who answers the prayer. Now the essential relationship must be there because none but those who know Jesus Christ as the Savior have the right to call upon God and to call him their Father. Now, one of the reasons that Jesus says, Our Father, is because he has something in common with those who ask. God is the Father only of those who are in Christ. 
Now, that is such an important point that if you uh, didn't get to hear the exposition of that first phrase, Our Father, which art in heaven, then I would encourage you to, to get a copy of one of the CDs and listen to the message. Listen to it on the Internet if you want. But that relationship is so important that if you don't have it, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, then you really have no right to call upon God. But we don't have time to cover all of that ground again today. There's a lot of other things that I want to speak to you about. But that relationship has to be a part of your prayer. And uh, if you don't have that, then it's impossible that you could do anything that comes after that. Well, so we're going to talk today about reverence in prayer. And the theme of the message this morning is our attitude towards the Father. And your attitude cannot be right, and you can't go to God in reverence as the Father unless, first of all, you do have the relationship. And I want to go a little bit further than that and just to say that if you are outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, outside of a relationship of the Father through Jesus Christ, that not only uh, can you not reverence the Father, but also you're guilty of rejecting Him, and you are in disobedience. Now, I want to notice today three particular areas of priority as it concerns our attitude towards the Father. All of that is to be governed by reverence. Reverence means respect. It means recognition and exaltation. It means to stand in awe, to fear, to venerate someone. And in this attitude of reverence, when we come to God, there are certain priorities that must be observed. Now, number one that we want to talk about today is the priority of principle. The priority of principle is the commandments of God. We must reverence all of the commands that God has given. Now, there are, of course, thousands of commands that you find throughout the Bible, but you can reduce all of the commands that you find in Scripture into the categories that are given to us in Exodus chapter 20. Now, of course, we all know those as the Ten Commandments. And so all commandments that are given by God are centralized into those Ten Commandments that God gave. And among those Ten Commandments, there is priority. Now, we can say that the first four commandments have the highest priority because those concern our relationship with God. The last six are about our relationship with man. And, of course, both those areas are absolutely essential to our obedience to God. But the relationship with God takes priority over relationship with man because you can't have the first without or can't have the second without the first. And so you can never reverse the order of this. You can't say man first and establish a relationship with man and then go to God because your relationship with man, the proper relationship that you have with one another, is always dependent upon the relationship that you have with God. Now, among those first four commandments that deal with the relationship with God, God has given us this particular commandment. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, where it says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. God had seen fit to give us his top ten list of laws that govern every, govern every interaction in the world. And there is a regulation among these top ten laws that God has given, even in those first four, that concerns or regulates the use of God's name. There is a premium that is put on God's name. And Jesus recognized that premium when he began this prayer, reverencing God's name by saying, Hallowed be thy name. Now, I really don't think that in this day and age that most people 
understand or have any idea what it means to reverence the name of God. And that's evident by just listening to the speech patterns of every single person in this room. I don't know how many times that I've heard people say, Oh, my God. Or they say, Jesus. Or they say, Oh, Lord. And you hear that spoken by Christians as exclamations of surprise. And that enters in to just about every normal conversation that you hear people speak. We freely bring God's name in when we talk, and we do it in a frivolous way. We even hear some Christians that will take God's name and will combine it with swear words, with profanity, and they drag God's name through the mud as if it doesn't matter at all how they use the name of God. Now, I'm going to speak about that a little bit more in just a minute, but I want to concentrate now particularly on the priority of commandment. Jesus said, hallowed be thy name. Now, most of us do understand that name, that that word name, that can also stand for reputation. When I say that this person has a really good name or that person has a really bad name, then you understand that I'm not necessarily talking about the sound of the name. Now, that could be what I'm speaking of, but most often we would recognize when I say this person has a good name or they have a bad name, you know I'm talking about their reputation. The name stands for the reputation. Now, in the Bible, when when it uses this word hallowed or reverend, greatly to be praised is what the Word of God says about God's name. It means what God's name stands for. The name represents the person of God. It means his traits. It means his characteristics. Everything that makes God who he is. And so when Jesus said, hallowed be thy name, he was referring to the person of God and referring to all of those attributes that make God what he is. Now, it's interesting as you look into the Old Testament that there are many different names that are used for God. God has given descriptive names throughout the Old Testament, and uh, that comes about in certain circumstances because the names that are given to God describe a part of his character. Now, I've listed for you today some of the names that we find in the Old Testament uh, that that, are the names of God. Now, these are by no means all of them. There are many, many different uh, names that are spoken to describe God, but I've given you a few of these that we want to talk about this morning just to show you the priority of his name. Now, first is the name Elohim, and that name means the power and the might of God. That's the very first name that we find for God in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning, Elohim created the heaven and the earth. And that name for God is used over 2,500 times in the Scripture. And what it refers to is God's strength as the creator. The psalmist said in Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And so when he used the name God there, he used Elohim. And that stands for that power and the might of God as the creator. Another name that we have for God that uh, you probably heard in a popular song is the name El Shaddai. And that means the breasted one. And that's a name that's used for God 48 times in the Old Testament. And it refers to God as the one who nourishes and cares for us. The psalmist said in Psalm 91, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And the word Almighty there is that Hebrew word Shaddai, and that brings out God's character as the provider for his people. A third name that we find for God in the Old Testament is El Olam. 
And that means the everlasting God. Forty times we find that in the Old Testament. In Isaiah forty twenty eight, as an example, it says, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator, the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. And so that's the everlasting God, El Olam. A fourth name that we find for God is the name Adonai. And this is the name that means master. It's the name of God that speaks of the relationship of God with his children as being that of a master to a slave. Now, in the New Testament, we have a counterpart to that in the Greek. It's the word kurios. And that word has a twofold implication. First of all, that God owns his people. And then, as one who is owned by God, a slave can expect the provision of the master. In Malachi 1, verse 6, uh, uh, The the scriptures here speak of of God as the master, and and here is really a complaint that goes up. It says, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priest that despise my name. And ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? And their master, that's the word Adonai. And that brings out another characteristic of God. And then we find another name in the Old Testament, and this is the one probably that you're most familiar with, and that's the name Jehovah. And Jehovah means the self-existent one. That's the most common name that you find for God in the Bible. That's used 6,823 times. Now, you'll recognize it in your King James Version by the word Lord. Uh, It's spoken of in that way, L-O-R-D, in all capital letters. And that's Jehovah. And most commonly, what that refers to is God as the Savior. Throughout the Scripture, there are nine compounds that are used with the name Jehovah that even break it further down into different characteristics of God. For example, you have the name Jehovah-Jireh. That means the Lord will provide. Now, that's the name that Abraham used when he went to sacrifice Isaac. If you remember the story, uh, Abraham took Isaac up on Mount Moriah, and Isaac asked Abraham a question. He says, where is the lamb for a sacrifice? And Abraham said to Isaac, the Lord will provide himself a lamb. And that's when Abraham looked up, and he saw that ram that was caught in the thicket by its horns. And so in Genesis 22, verse 14, there it says that Abraham called the place Jehovah-Jireh. That means that God will provide. Another example of a compound of Jehovah is one that I often mention to you, and it's whenever we sing the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That song was written by Martin Luther, and he has a a verse in the song that says, Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord, Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Lord, Sabaoth is Jehovah Sabaoth, and what that means is the Lord of hosts. And that's the name that was used when the pre-incarnate Christ appeared to Joshua just before the battle of Jericho. We read about this in Joshua chapter 5. It says, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. 
And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? The host of the Lord, that is Jehovah Sabaoth. And there again, that was Jesus, the incarnate, pre-incarnate Christ, appearing to Joshua just before the battle of Jericho. He is Jehovah Sabbath, the Lord of hosts. Now, my point in all of this, now we could go into all these different compounds if we had time today, but the point that I'm trying to make to you is that God's name is given priority. And there is a principle that whenever you use God's name, you just don't speak his name. You're bringing into the conversation who God is. You're bringing into that conversation everything that God's name represents. The attributes of God are behind that name. And so Jesus was mindful of that when he taught in the Lord's Prayer that God's name is to be hallowed. All of those characteristics of God are there whenever you speak the name of God. And so if you use God's name wrongly, you denigrate God's character. His name is his character. Now let's go on for a minute and let's talk about this this word hallowed. Number two is the priority of position. And this is a name that is above all names. What does it mean to hallow the name of God? Well, the word comes from a very important Bible word that we see over and over again in Scripture. The word means holy. And again, that's about respect and it's about reverence. God's name is a holy name. Now, one Bible dictionary has given a definition of holy as being perfect, transcendent, or spiritually pure, evoking adoration and reverence. Now, the position of God's name is that it is above every other name. I want you to listen to the words of Israel. These were spoken after God's word was read, right after the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt. And in Nehemiah chapter 9, it says, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever, and blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven and the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all the things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. Well, there do you see the name of God. It's a name that is to be exalted above all other names. His name is holy. It's hallowed. So there is no name that's greater than the name of God. And so when you speak his name, you can't use it lightly. You can't just throw God's name into any conversation because this is a name that has priority. It's first in position. And by virtue of that position, that is a name that must be reverence. Now, many of you are probably familiar with the uh, old Jewish practice concerning the name of God. They considered that the name of God was so holy that they wouldn't even speak it. And so whenever they read the scriptures, they wouldn't pronounce God's name. And so even today, we're not really sure in the Hebrew how that God's name should be pronounced. Now, most often, we say Yahweh, and that's represented by the consonants Y-H-W-H. But the Hebrews never wrote in the vowels, and so no one knows what those vowels actually are, and so thus no one knows the real pronunciation of God's name. Now, YHWH 
is called the Tetragrammaton. And without those vowels, we don't know the correct pronunciation. And so since the Jews would not pronounce the name of God when they read the Scriptures, what they would do is they would substitute another name for it. And so instead, whenever they were reading the Scriptures aloud, they would come to the name of God and they would substitute for it Adonai. Now let's go back for just a moment to that most common name that's used for God in the Scriptures, and that's the name Jehovah. Now, you may not know this, but Jehovah is not even a Hebrew word. That's a word that was substituted by combining the consonants of Yahweh with the vowels of Adonai, and they came up with the word Jehovah. Now, folks, that's how holy that they thought God's name was. It was so holy that they wouldn't even speak God's name out loud. Now, I don't really think that God intended for them to go that far. I mean, they could have used God's name reverently. They could have spoken his name only when it was in very serious conversation, very reverent conversation. But despite that, and despite that God may never have intended that we should never pronounce his name, that would be far better than to give, use God's name today and give it no respect. It'd be far better not to speak his name at all than to throw it into a conversation just to put it in there. To throw his name around means that you have no respect for God at all. Now, let me talk to you for just a moment about a little pet peeve of mine. And some of you are going to think, well, you've gone to meddling instead of preaching. But let me just tell you about something that bothers me. I'm going to give you an opinion about something that some of you might not like. The other day, I was having a conversation with someone about Facebook. Now, if you don't know what that is, tune me out for a few minutes because this won't affect you anyway. I'm not necessarily against Facebook, and I know that there are a lot of preachers that use it. I know that there are many members of the church that use it. But what I have been shocked to find out is that uh, there are, on some of members' sites, language that shouldn't be used. People post things on there and and things that ought not to be said, some questionable stuff that a member of Berean Baptist Church ought not to have. And I would say that, especially if you are a leader in the church, I'd suggest that you clean yourself up because there are people who read that. Teens read it, the church members read it, the public reads it, and folks, you're not representing Christ well. Now, as a spiritual leader of the church, I can assure you this, if I see anything like that, I'll be sure to tell you about it. I will confront you with it. Now, I don't understand all the workings of all that stuff because I don't use it myself. And maybe you can't control everything that people put there. But I I have heard this, that that if someone posts something inappropriate, that you are able to kick that person off. Now, I think that's what you ought to do and not let them back on. And then when you do that, I think every member of Berean Baptist Church who has a Facebook page ought to put a disclaimer on the very front page on their public postings that you do not approve of things that a child of God ought not to say and you will not be involved in anything shady or disrespectful to the Lord. You won't use his name in that way. And if you're ashamed to make that statement and keep yourself pure, and if you don't want to respect God's name, and you don't respect the privilege of being a member of the Berean Baptist Church, then, folks, you ought not to be here. Now, really, I'm not passing judgment on anybody about this thing. The Bible has already passed judgment on you. The Lord has already done that. 
Let me, let me read to you some scripture about it. Ephesians chapter 5. It says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become as saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be ye not therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now, there is a passage that has Facebook written all over it. That is Paul's Facebook. Now, folks, you need to reverence the name of God. And I, you know, I don't care if you spell it out or you don't spell it out or if you use little initials. Uh, I don't know what all that says, oh, my G, and stuff like that. That's the very same thing. People know what that means. And if you do not reverence the name of God, and, and if your social networking site ruins your name, what good are you for the cause of Christ? Your name is your character, just like God's name is his character. And so if you have a bad name, you've got a bad reputation. And I think it's no wonder that Christian people have no power with God in prayer. And that's because instead of building upon the skeleton that, God, that Jesus gave here in this model prayer, you start out by not reverencing God's name. And what you do is you strip the skeleton bare of even the bones. You can't pray if you don't know who God is and you don't hallow his name. You have to respect his character. And the chief way that you do that is by obedience to his commands. And there is that priority commandment in there. You can't take the name of the Lord God in vain. It's awful quiet, but that's okay. Now, I have one more point that I want to make about the beginning of the prayer. Hallowed be thy name. And that's the priority of petition. And the priority of petition is God and then us. Now, you might think that these four words here, hallowed be thy name, that's just a repetition of already established facts. God's name is reverent. God's name is holy. It's a a name that's been prioritized by commandment. And so those four words are just stuck in the prayer as an acknowledgement of that fact. Well, of course, we do acknowledge the fact. But the phrase is actually one of the petitions that's in the prayer. And as you notice here, this is the first of all petitions that is made in the Lord's Prayer. Now, it's followed by, thy kingdom come, that's a petition. Thy will be done, that's a petition. Give us this day, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation. Those are all petitions. And the first one that's up on the list of all the petitions when we pray is, hallowed be thy name. That is a petition. It's not just restatement of facts. And so this petition is the one that has the priority among all petitions. And that's just another way to show us how serious that Jesus was about the name of God. Now, in the next several weeks, we're going to talk about how prayer is constructed, and it's built around two different sets of petitions. The first set is the thy petitions, and the second set is the our petitions. And we notice that thy comes first, and then we settle down to our petitions. Now, that's the model that Jesus gives of prayer. So first up on the list, Jesus says, God's name should be kept holy. Now, it's interesting 
when we look at petitions and prayer, how we often reverse this. What we do is we jump into prayer and we lead off with, with whatever problem it's pressing us at the time. Now, some are even teaching today what we call this name it and claim it theology. And that is when you go to God and you pray that you have a right to demand from him what you want. Because you're a child of God and because of of being a saved person, you just have the right to go to God and demand that he give things to you. Now, Jesus is showing us here that, first of all, you address God rightly and then you come before God in the right attitude. You have to understand whose presence that you're in. The holiness of God must be preserved. And so when you enter into a prayer, you are stepping on holy ground. And what you need to do, so to speak is to take your shoes off. Tread lightly when you come to God. You are on holy ground. Now, when you speak to God, you are in his presence, you're on his turf. You don't speak to God ever as an equal. And then as I close today, I want want you to do this. I'd like you to uh, take your Bible and go to the Old Testament book of Jonah. And here we're going to see the right attitude about prayer. And there is no name it and claim it in this prayer. Now, some of you, it might be hard for you to find Jonah because you spend so much time on Facebook, so you don't know where it is. Um, That's just a joke. Don't anybody get mad at me. But if you look in those little books that are in the back of the Old Testament, you find Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, then comes Jonah. And uh, if you were over there close to Brenda Zamacona, you could ask her where to find it. She knows the books forwards and backwards. So, uh, book of Jonah. Now, if you found that, I want you to look at chapter 2. All of you know this story. Uh, Jonah disobeyed God when he was supposed to go preach in Nineveh. And uh, instead of uh, preaching where he was supposed to preach, Jonah took off in the opposite direction. And God was not going to let Jonah get by with that. And so God sent a storm on the sea, and it looked like everybody on the ship was going to drown. Jonah knew what was wrong, and so he spoke to the, to the captain of the vessel, and he says, here's what you need to do to set things right. He said, you just throw me overboard, and everything will be okay. And so that's what they did. And at the end of uh, chapter 1, it tells us there that God had prepared this great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and for three nights. Now, if you'll look then at the way that uh, chapter 2 begins... Jonah did exactly what you would expect a child of God would do. Jonah started to pray. Now, I want you to notice how he prays. Verse number 1, Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly and said, Lord, get me out of the fish. It stinks in here. Please, please, I I promise that I'm not going to do it again. Just let me out of this fish. Now, that's what we would do, wouldn't we? We're in trouble. And we save up prayer for the tough times when we can't do, it, do things any other way. And so we go to God and we say, bail me out because my ship is sinking. But not, not Jonah. Notice the way that he prays. He says, I cried by reason of my affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hadst cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods come past me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. Now, do you see this? So far, I mean, he's acknowledging the holiness of God. He hasn't even asked to get out of the fish yet. There's nothing here about what he wants God to do for him. Verse 5, he says, The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed round about. The weeds were, were wrapped about my head. 
I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth were her, and her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. Now there, you see this. There's admission of how he stands in God's eyes. He's corrupt. He says, O Lord my God. That's Jehovah my God. Self-existent God. There's acknowledgement of God's great name that he's the Savior. But still, nothing about getting out of the fish. He goes on to verse 7. When my soul fainteth within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own, their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And so you have sacrifice, you have thanksgiving. He says salvation is of the Lord. Recognition of the character of God. God is salvation. God's name is holy. Reverence for God's name. And still yet, not one word, get me out of this fish. And in fact, Jonah never even got that far. He didn't even have to ask. Because by doing his obedience to God, recognizing God's name and God's character, God knew Jonah's heart. And so in the very next verse, it says, God spoke to that fish and it vomited him out on the dry ground. Now, how unlike our prayers that is. I mean, didn't Jesus tell us that the Heavenly Father already knows what we have need of before we even ask? That's what he said in verse 8 before we get to verse 9 where the prayer starts. We have to recognize who God is and that we must obey God. And we come to him in that reverent manner, speaking to him in a way that we should speak to him. And the God who knew what Jonah needed before he ever asked answered the prayer before he even did ask. Now think about it. Could that be what's wrong with our prayers? That you don't have God answering prayer because you don't reverence his name? I mean, we go so frivolously to God in prayer and he already knows that he can't believe you. He's heard your everyday conversation. He knows how you speak. And so when you begin to say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, you haven't shown at all that you reverence God's name. God doesn't believe you when you say that. Your everyday speech betrays what you have in your heart. And so here we see that God says reverence his name, care about his name, far better would be to be like the Jews who didn't speak his name at all than to use God's name as a filler in your everyday vain conversations. So you see what Jesus is teaching? If you want to worship God in prayer, if you want power with God in prayer, if you want your prayers answered, then you have to have the relationship first and you must reverence God and his name. Is that the way that you speak to God? Now, I would submit to you, friends, that if you cannot reverence God's name in your everyday conversations, then something is wrong with the relationship. There's one author who said this. He says, I understand that Christians are capable of all kinds of sin, but I can't understand how a regenerate person could ever use the name of Jesus in a blasphemous way. How can you worship someone whom you routinely blaspheme? I don't see how it's possible. Priority of principle, the command is not to take the name of the Lord God in vain. Priority of position, God's name is high and it's holy. It's to be exalted above every other name. Priority of petition, recognizing where you stand. You're on holy ground and making it your very first petition that God gets all the glory that belongs to him. That's how we begin our prayers. So, do you have a relationship with God? Is God your Father? Have you received Christ? Well, if you have, then reverence God's holy name. 
And the God who hears prayer may just answer your prayer before you even get a chance to ask. You see what a blessed privilege it is to be able to pray? Here is God's opportunity that he puts himself on display. He shows you what a glorious God that he is. He hears, he answers prayer, he has that care for you. And you show that you acknowledge who he is when you reverence his holy name. That's how you know that God is truly real. And so if you're missing that assurance today, if you're missing this thing about knowing that God is real in your life, that you have a relationship with him, and, and, and knowing what God is to you, if that's missing in your life, if that assurance is not there, this could be the very reason. You've gone about your life without reverencing the holy name of God. And friend, I'm telling you, it's going to shut your prayers off right at the very beginning. God knows what's in your heart. He knows the purity of it. He knows what you're thinking before you ever ask. So don't wait until you're in trouble and then start crying out, Oh, my God. Speak to him in prayer. Reverence his holy name. And the God who knows your problems can answer that problem before you even take time to ask. This is what Jesus is instructing. This is why we look at the Lord's Prayer and why we break it down. Every part of it is essential if you want to have your prayers answered by God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you now we do want to reverence your holy name we praise you for the great God that you are that you've entered into relationship with us because of Jesus Christ and now Lord as we come to you uh, before we ever ask for anything that we need I just pray that we would recognize how holy how righteous how your name must be lifted up and that you'd speak to our hearts and that you would cleanse us from our sins so that we would recognize who you truly are Lord, I pray for anyone here today who is a Christian, who has been wrong about their speech, been wrong about the way they talk about you, and have been frivolous in the way that they pray. I just ask you, Lord, convict them right now, and may they just ask for forgiveness of having used your name in that way. Then, Lord, I pray for anyone here today who may not know you as Savior. They have no right to come to you in prayer. I just pray that you would speak to their hearts, that your Holy Spirit would open up their eyes of understanding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we pray that you would bless as we sing today. May your power be upon us, and we give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name, amen.